Well, good morning. God is good all the time. It's good to be back with you. Good to study God's Word together. I was sitting in my office last night. I have a special friendship with Freddie who uh, keeps our offices clean and helps us, and we have a lot of uh, great theological conversations as he comes into my office late at night. And He saw me study and asked me what I was studying for, and he said, oh, you're going to have a good study tomorrow. And I said, oh, I appreciate that. He said, nothing is better than that book. That's what he said. And I said, I think you're right. He said, there's nothing better in the whole world. I said, I agree with you. And uh, so I, I thought I would share God's word with you today about heaven. And we're going to be, as you see on your outline, if you've got that, we're going to be working through the gospel of Matthew today. That may sound frightening to you, but just remember last time we made it through the whole Old Testament. So, I mean, this should be a piece of cake, right? And uh, what I'm doing is, um, I would call a canonical approach. It's not the only way to study uh, heaven, but uh, I want to work through the teachings of the Scripture on heaven. So another approach would be a more topical approach um, to sort of answer six or seven questions about heaven. I hope to answer those questions in the context of teaching what the Gospel of Matthew says. Remember, we left off with Isaiah giving us a glimpse of the king of heaven. Remember, he's in the temple and he's worshiping and God shows up. And when God shows up at church, well, who knows what might happen then. And God shows up and he is this king seated upon a throne. And now every kingdom, by definition, must have a king. And a king must have a kingdom. So today we look at Matthew's teaching on the kingdom of heaven. He uses that expression... 49 times, but who's counting? 49 times he talks about the kingdom of heaven and he talks about our great king. And the great thing I noticed as I read through the gospel of Matthew in the last week is that he not only tells us about the king, but he tells us that the king is our father. So we pray, our father who art in heaven. He teaches us about that. From the outset of this gospel, we see that God is on the move. He's sending his son. He's thwarting the the wicked King Herod. The kingdom is coming. John comes preparing the way. Jesus is baptized. And in John chapter 3, verse 16, the very first time we see the word heaven used in this gospel, it says, heaven opens and the Spirit of God descends at the baptism. Literally, it says, I looked at it in the Greek, the heavens. It's plural. The kingdom of God. The heavens is the way that is. We say the kingdom of heaven, but it's a plural expression, which I think captures the greatness and the grandeur of heaven. So when Jesus begins to preach, and this is the first verse I want us to read together, in chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus' first sermon, first sermon he ever preaches, he talks about heaven. Notice this, it's in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, let me read to you. He says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Remember, we say kingdom means something akin to a rule or reign. So the rule or the reign of the heavenlies is near. What did Jesus mean? Well, when the king is near, the kingdom is near. He was not saying the location of the place of heaven is is near to you now. He was saying, the king of heaven is near to you, and he is ruling and reigning on earth as he is 
in heaven. So you are to acknowledge his kingdom and Jesus begins to heal people and to cast out demons and to establish the rule of the kingdom here on earth. So when he sat down to preach what we call the Sermon on the Mount, we're not surprised to hear him talk about heaven. So let me read to you chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And again, we're going to be moving through the text. If you drop your pen, you have to drop the course. I mean, we're going to be moving. So stay with me, and uh, that'll keep us alert and awake. Um, and let's, uh, let's share God's Word together. If you feel uh, inclined to, stand with me as we read Matthew 5. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to Him and He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven." For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, bless the reading of your word today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, looking at Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of Matthew, We see that for for Jesus, heaven is not just there as we tend to think of it, but heaven is here. And so the first rubric, heaven here and there. And Jesus' teachings just remind us that every day of our lives, we live at the nexus, at the juncture, at the meeting point of heaven and earth. Heaven has come in the form of God's Son. We might use an expression and sort of change a a prevalent vernacular expression. All heaven is breaking loose, Jesus says, in our world through Christ and through the gospel of salvation. So the kingdom of heaven is revealed in the Beatitudes. So he starts by saying, blessed or oh, how happy, worthy of being made happy are the poor, those who mourn, the meek. And the hungry, we're shaking our heads so far, aren't we? Those don't sound like happy, blessed kinds of people. The poor in spirit, the mourners, the meek, the hungry. Then he says the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. But I want you to notice at the beginning, the first beatitude, and at the end, the eighth beatitude, he says the kingdom of heaven is already a present possession of those who are poor in spirit, and who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now watch this. So, so the first and the last get the kingdom of heaven. But what I want you to see is every promise in every beatitude gives us 
a glimpse or reveals a truth about heaven. So watch this. When he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, what about the the next group of people, those who mourn? They'll be comforted. That's an expression that helps us understand heaven. Blessed are the meek. Why? They will inherit the earth. Remember we said last, last time we gathered that there's a new heavens and a new earth as well. Those who hunger and thirst, they will be filled. That means in heaven, I think, that we will not be hungry anymore. That's a good thing. Blessed are the merciful. They'll be shown mercy. We need mercy. The pure in heart will see God. In heaven, we'll see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called the sons of God. Our experience as the children of God will be manifest there in heaven. Theirs is, again, at the end, the kingdom of heaven. All of that just to say to you that he is telling us that the the coming of Christ into our world begins to reveal the presence of heaven. And heaven is a place where, where we are comforted, where um, we, in, we inherit, where we are filled, where we're shown mercy, where we see God, where we experience what it means to be the children of God. It's as if Jesus is saying, heaven is breaking through already. It has already begun. And if you go through these things, you will begin to receive heaven here. Then stay with me as I move over to verses 19 and 20 where he talks about the least, and we would say the greatest, but that's not what it says. It says the least and the great. I guess the greatest in the kingdom of heaven would be God, right? But the least and the great. And what he says is, talking about the law and the commandments, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. They will all be completed. And the one who breaks one of the least of these commandments, he says, will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. But those who keep the commands, will be great. He's not teaching works righteousness here, but rather that entry into the kingdom presupposes a greater righteousness than the Pharisees have. The Pharisees, remember, are these sort of meticulous law keepers, but they don't keep the spirit of the law, just the letter of the law. Then we come to the Lord's Prayer. I told you we were going to move quickly. We're already in another chapter. Chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Listen to this. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice in verse 10, your kingdom come. So it's not just that we pray to go to heaven. When we receive Christ, in some ways, we we realize that was a prayer that someday we would go to heaven. But Jesus says, you don't just pray for you to go to heaven. You pray for heaven to come to you. You pray for heaven to to break loose in this world, for God's will to be done, for God's kingdom to come. And really, in parallel, those are the same thing. If God's kingdom comes on earth, then God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? Perfectly. Immediately. Constantly. His will is done in heaven. And in the same way, God wants His will to be done here on earth. What would that look like? I'm reading a little book about the great spiritual awakenings in the history of the world. And in that book, it tells about times when heaven just broke loose, when when people changed their minds, when Jesus teaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is near really took place. Like in the Welsh revival over in Wales, crime went to an all time low because people's hearts were changed by the coming of the kingdom of heaven into their lives. We could say, well, they got saved and they're going to heaven, but it's better than that. Heaven came to them and it changed who they were. And I think one of our shortcomings in teaching about heaven is if we sort of see it as a 
someday pie in the sky in the sweet by and by, and we miss the reality. That's why Jesus will say later in chapter 6, when you're storing up your treasures, don't store them up on earth. Well, where else would we store them? He says, we'll store them up in heaven. Why? Because on earth, as we have learned, a moth um, can, can destroy your clothing. Rust can destroy your car. I lived in Chicago for a while and watched the cars there erode away. Um, thieves can break in and steal. I've experienced this in the past year. I heard some of you experienced it in the past week. I'm sorry to hear that. And I have to say, that is the truth about the world that we live in, that things can be taken away from us. So here's the question. Jesus says, don't store up your treasures on earth, but store them up in heaven. Do you have more invested here or there? I have a friend who likes to say to me, I have more up there than I have here. I have more up there, more of what I love, more of what I treasure, more of the people. I have more there than I have here. And we we come, I think, to experience that in our lives. So how do we store things up in heaven? This is interesting. I wrote this, and then as I studied the, the, the book of Matthew, I discovered that he will use this expression again. Now, um, again, I'm, I'm sorry, we're moving, but, but chapter 19. And uh, if you want to turn there with me in verses 23 to 30, it's after, while you're turning there, I'll give you the, the, the background. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And this man has done a lot of good things in his life, in his own perspective, He has kept all of the commandments. Uh, He has not murdered. He has not committed adultery. He's not stolen. He's not given false testimony. He's honored his father and his mother, and he's loved his neighbor as himself. And he says, all these I've kept since my youth. What do I still lack? And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, this is verse 21, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. And you will have what? So how do I store up treasure in heaven? He says, Then come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, was Jesus just Jesus just trying to to uh, irritate this man? Was was he just trying to bother him? No. In fact, Mark tells us Jesus looking at him, loved him. Jesus, Jesus love was not in question here, but Jesus loved him so much that he was calling him. And I know we know that God does not ask everyone to sell all their possessions and give to the poor. Right. We know that. God does not ask everyone to do that. I also know that he could ask any one of us to do that at any time. Do we agree on that? Doesn't ask everyone to do it, but he could ask any one of us. If that were the most important thing in our lives, he could ask us to set that aside. So Peter, in response to that, look at this in verse 27, says, we've left everything to follow. You remember when Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee and says, come and follow me. And and, and Peter and, and Andrew, they leave the fishing boat. John and James leave the fishing boat. They leave everything to follow him. And Jesus, this is not a parable. Now, we're going to look at some parables and some teachings today. Parables, remember, are earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. But this is not a parable. Jesus is, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things. He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like. He says, at the renewal of all things. This sounds like something that is going to happen. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and, listen to this, will inherit eternal life, which is another expression for heaven. It's a life that begins now and goes on for eternity. He will inherit 
eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. One of the things we know about heaven is that some of the people who are first here will be last there. And some who are last there, um, that expression will be, those who are first here will be last there, and those who are last here will be first there as well. So he says, we've left everything. We've given up so much to follow you, Jesus says. And and Jesus says, don't worry. You're going to get more in heaven than you had here. I think that's an expression of reward. But here's what I want you to see. He doesn't say getting 100 times more than what you gave up is heaven. He says, you'll get 100 times more than you gave up for me, and you'll inherit. He doesn't say you'll earn eternal life by giving these things up. You'll inherit it because eternal life is a gift. Heaven is a gift. We inherit it. Then Jesus tells them they will judge on thrones. In Alcorn's book, Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, which I think is a very fine book, in that book he talks about whether or not we will actually rule on earth. And it's his uh, interpretation of the scripture that we will, that those who serve here will rule there. Well, it's easy for a guy in the 21st century to say that. But listen to this. Here's a, here's a second century Christian, Irenaeus, who's a disciple of Polycarp, who's a disciple of John, who's a disciple of Jesus, He's a fourth-generation Christian, so to speak. Irenaeus, the church father, says, In the Messianic kingdom, the martyrs will reclaim the world as the possession which was denied to them by their persecutors. Persecutors took the world away and killed these martyrs, but they'll get it back in the creation in which they endured servitude. They will eventually reign. Richard Moo puts it this way, Political power, which has been so corrupted and twisted in the hands and hearts of sinful rulers, must be returned to its rightful source. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with Him. Revelation 22, verse 5, not only will He reign forever and ever, but we will reign forever and ever. Now, He's the King, but we are His servants. As somebody has said, only one life, it will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. This teaching reminds us that it is possible for us to transfer the gifts of grace that God has given us here, and to so steward them here that we transfer them into heaven itself, that that which we lose here, we gain there. The last thing I want to show you in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, forgive me for my diversion there, but just to amplify that, I wanted you to see that. In Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus makes a lot of contrasts in this book between the wheat and the weeds we will see between the good fish and the bad fish. I think that's trout and bass, but that's just my opinion. The good tree and the bad tree here in chapter 7. And then in verse 21, he makes this statement. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Talk is cheap. It's not what you say. But only he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So it's not that they knew Jesus and now they don't know him anymore. He says, yeah, we never knew each other. There never was a relationship. And my point in this is that relationship is required. And relationship is confirmed not only by talking about God's will or even praying for God's will, but doing God's will. Don't just be a hearer of the word, James says, but be a doer of the word. This confirms the relationship. So after the Sermon on the Mount, we're moving really fast now. In chapter 13, we want to camp out here for a few moments just on some vignettes, snapshots of heaven, I call them. And the first analogy he uses 
is about a harvest in which good and bad are separated. And I parallel that with not only wheat and weeds, but good fish and bad and sheep and goats. In the parable of the weeds in verse 24, here's the story. There's a man who sows good seed in his field. He's planting. But while everyone is sleeping, his enemy comes and sows seeds among the wheat. And then he goes away. And when the wheat sprouts and forms heads, then the weeds also appear. Does it sound like your front yard? The weeds also appear. You didn't plant them. You don't know why they're there. The owner's servants came and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this. So Jesus is constantly aware as he's teaching us about the kingdom of heaven that not only is God at work in this world, but there's an enemy at work in this world. And the enemy who's at work in this world is trying to do harm. An enemy did this, he says in verse 28 of chapter 13. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? Now, this is very interesting. Jesus cares more about the wheat than he does about the weeds. He's not willing to lose wheat while they're tearing up the weeds. So he says, no, let it all grow up. And there will come a time when the wheat will be gathered into the barn. This is an image of heaven. We'll be gathered together. And the weeds, he says, will be bundled up and thrown into the fire. So there's a picture there. And for us to talk about a place called heaven is not to deny the reality of a place called hell. More about that in a moment. The parable of the net. Some of Jesus' disciples are fishermen. He speaks in terms that people can understand. You pull in the net. They're good fish. They're bad fish. Who? So the righteous and wicked will be separated again. Only thing I want you to see that's interesting in that particular story is that in this parable, um, when Jesus talks about the good fish and the bad fish, um, in that parable of the net, in verses 47 through 50, what we see is that the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. So just as wheat and weeds are separated, so good fish and bad fish and the symbols are of the righteous and the wicked. Same thing with the sheep and the goats in chapter 25. We won't turn there. But just notice again, on the same subject, Jesus doesn't just share parables, but this is an actual teaching. He says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory. He's not talking about a master who hired workers. He's not talking about a king in a faraway kingdom. He's saying, when the Son of Man comes, now Jesus is talking about Himself, in all of His glory, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. Four things you need to know about Jesus' second coming. It will be personal. Jesus is not going to send a committee. He will come personally. It will be visible. All eyes will see Him. It will be powerful. It will be powerful. And He will be victorious. Personal, visible, powerful, victorious. Thank Wordus Gideon for that. He tried to teach me New Testament at seminary. All the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate people. Look, this is not just... Good fish and bad fish and wheat and weeds. Jesus is telling us, I'm talking about real people. People you know. People in your family. People who live on your street. People whom you will run into in the grocery store. And you may not be able by looking at them to tell whether they're a sheep or a goat. But Jesus can tell. Jesus knows who they are. And he puts the sheep on his right because the right is the hand of favor. The goats on his left and the sheep hear these words. Come, you blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. It's not what you've earned. It's what you've inherited. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And these sheep, the righteous, have ministered, remember, to the least in Jesus' name. 
They don't even remember it. They're the last to know the good that they've done. They've not earned their salvation, but they've confirmed their salvation. And they're the righteous who've done it to the least of these. I read a beautiful story this week about a man named Bob Musikowski, Chicago insurance broker, who's driving by an old baseball field that's derelict and torn down, trashy in a gang-infested neighborhood in Chicago. And he thinks the kids here could use a real little league to play in. And he, he teamed up with a friend to create the Near North Little League. They had 250 boys initially who had lots of enthusiasm, but were pretty, pretty short on the fundamentals of baseball. Each game began with a prayer, and cursing was strictly forbidden. And he said, I had no illusions I was going to change the world, but I had no doubt that God wanted me to play baseball with these kids. Now, 900 fatherless kids are playing in that baseball league with 100 little league teams, and they're learning self-respect and community values. And Musikowski puts it this way. When people say, why did you do this? He says, look, I couldn't farm it out. Jesus didn't say, when you've paid someone to do it under the least of these, what he said was, when you have done it to the least of these. There are practical ways for us to put the gospel into practice. The sheep have done it to the least of these, and they don't even remember doing it. But the goats, he says, depart from me. Look, if heaven is being with God, hell is being separated from his love and his mercy. And notice again in that, in that passage, you've, I gave you the outline so you could look these up on your own, but there in chapter 25, hell was not made for people. For whom was it made? The devil and his angels. It was prepared not for us, but for the devil and his angels. And the message is you either go to punishment or to life. But listen to this in verse 46 of chapter 25. You either go to punishment or to life, but both are eternal. That is to say, there's not going to be a halftime where you get to, get to choose a different team. You, there is no second chance. Our destiny is irrevocable. So we need to get it right in this life. He talks about the growth of heaven in chapter 13. I'm going to just bypass that. He talks about the value of heaven. I think this is significant. He shows us the incredible value of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 13, verses 44 and 45 Don't worry, we're making great progress here. In verse 44, it doesn't feel like it, Pastor. Believe me, we are. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now there's something within us that makes us slow down here, doesn't it? We love the story. We, We read Robert Louis Stevenson when we were kids, Treasure Island. But there's something about this story. This, this guy finds it, and then he hides it. And he goes and buys the field. And we think, wait a minute, doesn't he have some ethical responsibility here? We're awfully good, aren't we? He, we, he has some ethical, you know, this is like another Enron. I mean, something bad could happen out of this if you just go and fool people and do that. But that's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is, if you ever find out how good relationship with God is, you would give up everything to get that. Now, as an 18-year-old preacher, I persecuted the saints at Pleasant Grove and told them this was God selling everything to buy us. I was wrong. It's not hard for me to say that. It's just true. I was wrong about that. That's not what this story is about. This is us when we realize the precious worth of relationship with God. Real life story, September 2009. Um, British archaeologists announced that a man with one of those metal detectors is working in his field and finds 
1,345 gold pieces that date back to the 7th century A.D. It's an Anglo-Saxon find. You know, I see this guy on the bayou when I jog in the mornings, and he's out there with that metal detector, and I'm thinking, he's going to find a bottle cap. That's, he's going to work all day, and he's going to find one bottle cap. But just to show you that there really is buried treasure in a field, Terry Herbert, this, this treasure hunter, said that the, he's going to sell it and split the findings with his friend who owns the farm, uh, they're splitting it 50-50 and giving um, the, um, the fine to, uh, um, to a museum, but they're being paid for it in seven figures, both of them. And, um, and Terry Herbert said, I think wealth of this kind must have belonged to a king. So envision this back in the 7th century. That's the 600s. Somebody knows that their enemies are coming and they bury this in a field. And 1,500 years later, how happy do you think Terry Herbert was when he found that? Notice in these stories, whether it's a a treasure in a field or the pearl merchant who's seen all the pearls there are, verse 45, and he finds the one, the pearl of great price, and he gives up everything. And I want you to see the joy, the word, they found it. This is very informative. The Greek word is eureka or risko. They found it. They found it found it. And to find Christ is to find the greatest treasure. So much so, listen to this, heaven is so incredibly intrinsically valuable that we would give up everything to know that we have relationship with Him. It sort of resets our priorities for us, doesn't it? Randy Alcorn tells about um, going to Egypt with his family and their tour guide is determined to take them down this trashy alley to this abandoned cemetery. And he said, Look, we're not here to see an abandoned cemetery. We want to see the Sphinx. We want to see the pyramids. Don't take us. And he said, no, no, you've got to see this. And they go down to this abandoned cemetery, and they walk over to a particular tombstone, and it says William Borden on it. And by the tombstone, you can tell this young man died at the age of 25. I'm no Egyptologist, but I'm thinking Borden is not a common last name in Egypt. And so... He looks at it and realizes this is the William Borden, heir to the Borden Milk Company, who was a millionaire in his early 20s and decided that God was calling him to be a minister to the Muslims in China. So he goes to Egypt to learn Arabic, to learn the Muslim culture, to learn that. And while he is there, contracts spinal meningitis and dies. And what's interesting is after on this tombstone, it tells something of Borden's story. The last thing it says, I think, is the most informative. It says, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. And and Randy Alcorn said, and I thought, Lord, what's the explanation for my life? Apart from faith, you can't explain William Borden leaving the Borden Milk Company and going to be a missionary and dying at the age of 25 apart from faith in Christ. Now, here's my question. Can people explain my life and your life apart from faith in Christ? When we see how good the kingdom of heaven is, how wonderful heaven will be, we let go of the treasures of this world in favor of the treasure trove, which is heaven. A friend of mine says we go for the gold. We recognize there's something greater than this life. Now, a few more heavenly stories, and we move to Matthew chapter 20. And we notice just a couple other things that Matthew teaches us about heaven. This is Jesus. Jesus 
spent all of eternity past and will spend all of eternity future in heaven. If anybody knows about Jesus, I mean, we're going to look at John uh, next time. We're going to look at Paul's teachings. This is my canonical approach. We're going to end up the last two studies in Revelation. But nobody, nobody but nobody knows heaven better than Jesus. And Jesus talked about heaven and he he taught about it and he taught about the order of heaven and he tells a parable in chapter 20. It's the parable of the workers in the vineyard. These parables often begin with, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning. You know this story? To hire men to work in his vineyard, he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. That's the story. Except he keeps going back and finding more workers and he keeps sending them out. Even at the 11th hour, near the end of the day, one hour left to work, he finds these guys who are not working and says, go out into my field and I'll pay you at the end of the day. And so he pays them in reverse order. Remember this? The first will be last. The last will be first. He pays them in reverse order and he pays the ones who went out for one hour a full denarius, a full day's work. They receive the full blessing. And the other ones think, This is human nature, isn't it? If he got a denarius, I am going to get rich. If he got one for working one hour, you need to start doing that mental math. I did eight hours. He did one. I get eight denarii if he gets one. But alas, they agreed to work for one denarius and they get one denarius. And you look at this story and you realize heaven is not based upon our idea of fairness. Again, Nobody earns it. The landowner invites the people to join him in his work. He hires all day long, even to the 11th hour. And we can be so like those first workers. You've seen people come to Christ at the last moment. You've seen people come to Jesus and you thought that person would never come to Jesus. And and at our best, what do we do? We rejoice. But I remember when I went up to Washington State when my grandfather was very close to death and he had lived a pretty rough life, or so I'm told. And um, I was invited to go up and see him and to talk to him about the Lord. And I got up there and we sat down under the shade tree um, there beside his junkyard and one of his stores. And he prayed and received Christ as his savior. And then I talked to his sons, my grandfather's sons, my dad and and his brother. My dad said, are you sure it was not too late for him? You don't know all the stuff that he's done. And I said, no. It's not too late. He's still alive. It's never too late. But dad, it's never too early. (laughs) Hint, hint. It's never too early, dad. But my uncle was worse. My uncle said, if that guy went to heaven, I don't want to go to heaven. Talking about his own dad. And he was like, what? And and, and here's my word to you about that. Sometimes when, when we hear about the grace of God, It sets us aback, doesn't it? To think that God could be gracious to some of the people. I remember when Noriega became a Christian and people said, Noriega? Noriega can't become a Christian. Noriega was a a petty dictator in in, uh, Central America. A guy like that can't just suddenly receive Jesus and all the the income free. He's, He's all good. Look, you weren't saved mostly by grace. You were saved all by grace. You didn't augment it. You didn't supplement it. You didn't do a little bit of good and a little bit of grace and the combination got you in. We misunderstand grace if we think some people can't get in. 
We misunderstand grace if we resent the fact that God is good to people who maybe haven't lived as good as we perceive ourselves to have lived. I read to Casey last night a book that Chase gave her. I have no idea where he got it, but it was a story of two pigs, and one was a good pig, and one was a bad pig, and, um, and God calls them in. 77 Elm Street's the address, if you're wondering where heaven actually is. I don't know, but that was in the book. I was just reading it last night, reluctantly, if I can be confessional this morning, and I'm reading this book, and it's a longer book than I want to read, but they get to 77 Elm Street, and the good pig gets there, and his tie is always straight, and his hat is always right, and he knows he's better than other people, and God says to him three things. I love you, and by the way, you're not as good as you think you are, and by the way, I still love you anyway. Now, the other pig, Sidney, I remember his name. Norman was the good pig. Sidney was the bad pig. Sidney gets there, and he's really nervous. He can't sleep the night before, and he gets to 77 Elm Street. He gets there late. His, his tie is crooked. His hat's on sideways. And God says, I have three things to say to you. I love you. That's the first thing that I want to say to you. The second thing I want to say to you is, I love you. And the third thing I want to say to you is, I love you. At this point, Casey sits up in bed and goes, what? <laughs> and I said, no, that's what God says to us. He tells us, now I'm into the book. You know, I'm ready to read now and it's over. Don't let God's grace put you off. Just to know that He loves people and that we're not in heaven because we think we're good. So then He shows us another parable in chapter 22 of those who are invited to heaven. And it's the king preparing this wedding banquet. You know this story? Chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. You know what I love about the pictures of heaven? There's food in them. I love stories about food. I love to eat. And I think these are, these are ways that depict and describe for us the reality. And so the images of a wedding, and don't miss this, Jesus is the bridegroom, the church is His bride, the image of you know, coming to, that's a, that's a prominent image, come for all things are now ready. We'll look at that more when we get to Revelation. But notice, the king tries to get people to come, but they won't come. So he sends other servants and the people mistreat them. So the king destroys those who have mistreated his servants. And he sends his servants to invite others. Luke tells us uh, you know, uh, that the ones who won't come have got a new business or they've got some other reason why they just can't come. And finally, after his servants go to the highways and byways, they fill the house. But here's the shocking thing. One man, this is what I just want to read just this one part to you. So you're, you're caught up now. Watch this. Um, in verse 11, but when the king came in to see his guests, and remember, both the good and bad are there from verse 10. The wedding hall is filled with guests, but in 11, but when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. Now, if you didn't know what the rest of it said, you might think, so he went and got him some wedding clothes and said, friend, if you're going to be in my wedding, you need to have wedding clothes. But that's not what it says. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is Matthew's way of describing Jesus' way of describing hell. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Um, notice that, that everybody has been invited, good and bad, but this one man is singled out, and Jesus says many are invited, but few are chosen. And this is just what I want to say to you. For those who say to you, yeah, everybody's going to heaven. This story is just a reminder that everyone is invited to heaven, but this man, for whatever reason, has chosen not to come in a wedding garment. 
This is not about predestination. It's to those who say everyone is going to heaven, we would say all are invited, but each one is responsible to choose Christ and to get into heaven. You have to be clothed in Christ. There is no other way. God will not be deceived. Look, we can fool some of the people all the time and all the people some of the time, but never fool God any of the time. And the truth will be known there. So I think parables like this about heaven remind us that we must not be presumptuous. Last night I came in late. Those of you, thank you for those of you who serve us food. Thank you. If they're out there listening, thank you for serving us food. That is a great gift. I came in late. I was in a meeting. I came in late. My family was already here. They didn't pay for me. I had to pay for myself. I'm not complaining, but I've paid for them a bunch of times. Anyway, I come to the serving line, and I get there, and I get the food, and I'm walking down to the dessert area, and there is a cobbler pan there. Now remember, if you know me, you know I believe in cobbler therapy. I believe most anything bad in your life can be solved with cobbler. And I look, and it's empty. And I said, oh, so we got another pan coming. No, but there is cake. All the good things that had happened to me all day long were lost in a moment's time. The cobbler pan was empty. To make matters worse, I get to my table right over here, and everybody at the table except my daughter Casey has cobbler. Everybody has cobbler. Little kids have cobbler. Little kids who don't even like cobbler have cobbler. Are you with me? Are you feeling my pain? And so I'm I'm sitting there, and Casey leaves the table, which she is prone to do, and comes back with a big brownie. And she sits down and begins to eat the brownie. Now, here's the magic moment. There's a little girl across the table who sees the brownie, and she now holds her cobbler in contempt. She has disdain for her cobbler. Because after all, in this world, there are such things as brownies. And I can see it written on her face because I'm good like that. And I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, would you like a brownie? And she said, yes. And her dad said she would give her kingdom for a brownie. I said, but would she give her cobbler? Yes, she would. So I'm working a deal. My dad's a used car dealer. I'm good at this. So I head back there. And all I've got to do is come back with a brownie. And I am in cobbler heaven, so to speak. And so I go, but there are, after all, rules associated with the children's dinners, the box lunches. And so I walk up smiling from ear to ear, and I say, can I have a brownie? And the two girls who are in our youth group, who are wonderful young ladies, look at me and say, do you have a ticket? And I said, no, but I paid for my meal, and I have not eaten any dessert yet. See, I'm just thinking exchange here, right? But there are adults there who are looking at me like, we don't believe you because your reputation for sweets precedes you. And so I begin as the pastor to try to explain to them, you know, no, no, I haven't eaten dessert yet, but I'm trying to work a trade here. And this brownie's not even really for me. And I'm getting rolling eyes now at this. You love chocolate. Yeah, I do. But I'm not so big on brownies, but I really love cobbler. And so eventually I convinced them to give me a brownie. And I came back And I made the exchange, and I was just thinking about that, and I was trying to explain the story at the table, and I was just thinking, um, even if you're the pastor, um, there are are rules. And and when you, you know, you might get cobbler, or you might get a brownie, but when I stand before the Lord someday, it's not like they're going to say, oh, well, you're the pastor, we'll let you in. It doesn't work that way. It works. Look, you got to have a ticket. This man needed wedding clothes. And you have to be clothed in Christ. He is the only way of salvation. We must never presume on that. We come now as we conclude. 
marriage in heaven. Jesus, this is not a parable. He teaches at the end of 22. And he says there, um, they have this idea about the seven brothers who marry the same woman and the law of leveret marriage. They have to marry their brother's wife after their brother dies, except they all die. And the question is, the Sadducees don't believe in a real place called heaven or resurrection um, because, well, they just don't. And so they say, whose wife will she be? In the kingdom, they're trying to trick Jesus up. It's the last week of his life. And Jesus says, yeah, well, there's no such thing as marriage in heaven. At the resurrection, they will not marry, nor will they be given in marriage. What do you make of that? Anybody else here feel like I like, how could it be heaven if I'm not married to Melanie there? Because, I mean, Melanie represents most of the good that I've known in this world. Um, But here's what I want you to see. There is marriage in heaven. Jesus is the bride, I mean the the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. There is marriage, but that doesn't mean that we won't know our loved ones there. In fact, as I interpret Paul's words to the Thessalonians, I will know Melanie better there than I've ever known her here. I will know as I am known, and I believe we'll be closer there, but in terms of marriage and bearing children, there'll be no need for that. Heaven will actually, if you can believe this, will be better than that. How? I don't know, but, but think of it this way, as Alcorn says in his book, just as on earth, the closer we draw to Christ, have you found this to be true? The closer we draw to Christ, the closer we're drawn to each other. Look, if you get closer and closer to Him, and you're both getting closer to Him, what's happening to you? The closer we get to Christ here, the closer we are to each other. In the same way, knowing Him perfectly there, we will know each other perfectly there, so that, if you think of it this way, our best relationships here will be better there. You say, how? Yeah, that's the mystery. But they will be better there. Um, Our highest pleasures here will pale by comparison to life there. It's richer. The tapestry is more multivarious and beautiful than we can conceive. Notice in heaven, as we continue in chapter 24, there will be responsibility um, I saw a bumper sticker some years ago that said, Christ is coming back. Look busy. Look, you don't just want to look busy. You want to be busy. Because in chapter 24, verse 47, he says, if we're faithful here, he will put us in charge of more there. And then the beautiful parable of the talents. The good servant who's been faithful with a few things. He says, I'll put you in charge of many things. Read Alcorn's book. He says, Part of the gift of heaven is multiplied opportunity and responsibility there. I have a friend that I jog with every Saturday morning. He just shows up at my house and won't leave, so I have to go out. And 6 o'clock every Saturday morning. And he manages companies. I mean, this guy's just brilliant. And, And he says to me, the other day we were talking about heaven, and he said, you know, i got to tell you, Pastor, I don't even sing in the choir here. I don't see heaven as just, can you tell me? I mean, is, are we going to do anything there? I mean, he said, because just think about me, Dwayne. I can't be happy unless I'm making things happen. And my, my vision, I think what the scripture is teaching here in terms of responsibilities, I actually take these stewardship parables rather literally, that God who has put us in charge of things here, that faithfulness here will, will, will bring increased opportunity, not only here, but also there. What does that look like? I don't know. You got a new heaven, you got a new earth. I don't know. Uh, Alcorn talks about managing cities there. I don't know. Well, we need to rule, he says, if Jesus is the ruler. What does that mean? And there's a lot of mystery in that, but there will be 
responsibility in heaven. And so finally, I would say to you, we need to stay ready for heaven. The parable of the ten virgins who are to meet the bridegroom. The foolish have lamps, but no oil. The wise have both. Remember, the bridegroom's a long time in arriving. The midnight cry says he's here. The wise cannot share their oil because they don't know when he's coming. The foolish miss the moment. The door is shut and the message is keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. I want us to be so heavenly minded that we're earthly good. Listen to this. Americans who expect Jesus to return in the next 40 years, 41%. Only 41%. We don't really know the hour or the day. But there's a beautiful story about Robbie Robbins, who was an Air Force pilot during the first Iraq war. And after his 300th mission, he was surprised to be given permission to immediately pull his crew together and fly his plane home. They flew across the ocean to Massachusetts, then had a long drive to western Pennsylvania, drove all night. His buddies dropped him off in the driveway just after sunup. And there was a big banner across the garage. Welcome home, Dad. How did they know, he thought. No one had called. The crew themselves hadn't expected to leave so quickly. He walks into the house. The kids are about half dressed for school, scream, Daddy. Susan comes running down the hall. His wife, she looks terrific. Her hair is fixed. Her makeup is on. She's in a crisp yellow dress. How did you know, he asked. I didn't, she answered through tears of joy. But once we knew the war was over, we knew you'd be home one of these days. We knew you'd try to surprise us. So we were ready every day. If you stay ready, You never have to get ready. Are we ready? The day before he went home to be with the Lord, our friend B.O. Wilkins, whose funeral is tomorrow at 11. B.O. looked at his daughter Melanie in the wee hours of that Monday morning and said, it's time to wrap this up. He was ready. Be ready. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this chance to study your word together. Thank you for the promise of heaven. We've been on a whirlwind tour. Would you take these truths that we have heard and plant them deeply in our souls that they may bear fruit not only for eternity, but for today. God, prepare us because heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. And I pray that we would be diligent to get ready and that you would make us ready. And I thank you for the promise of eternal life. And until we sit at the banquet and eat, Lord, I pray that you will nourish us through the food that we are to eat today. That you'll nourish us with these friendships and this fellowship. And give us grace for the living of these days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.